0: His face had smashed into the dashboard of the plane, you know, we knew it was very, very bad. When it snapped, it was quite low to the ground. A fraction of a second after that, the aeroplane was cartwheeling into the ground. 242, responding probe one. We're having a lady unconscious. Topic approach 1320.
1: Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role... The Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: Then I saw him wipe his face, and when he wiped his face, his whole face moved quite significantly. So dropped down quite a lot, quite moved. So I knew that his face was was mush.
1: There is a little backstory as the introduction to this episode's interview. A few years ago, I got to meet a wonderful young man who was a pilot for the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Queensland. His name is Nick Tully, and he assisted me by coming to Canberra to tell his story of how he came to work for the service in a video production that is now part of a permanent RFDS exhibit at the National Museum of Australia. I have luckily had the chance to catch up with Nick again since that time at the Charleville RFDS base, and he continues to impress me Then recently, I received a letter from Nick's dad, John, telling a harrowing story of an accident he had. In his words, he described it as, 9-11-2001 was a momentous day in world history, a day that ranks with Pearl Harbour as one of infamy and courage. But for me, 9-11-2001 was a very different day. Feeling a great affinity for the Tully family already, I was keen to interview Nick's dad, John, but I soon found out that his poor hearing was going to make recording a podcast over a long distance very difficult. So that's where Nick's brother Stephen comes in. It turns out that Stephen was there with his dad on 9-11 of 2001 and I'm very thankful that he's made time to come and have a chat with me. G'day, Stephen.
0: Hi, how are you going?
1: I'm good, thank you. Can you tell me about the cattle property where you grew up?
0: Um, we're sheep, cattle and goats here and has uh, always been the home place. It's 80,000 acres. It's just varied country. It's not all flat. It's on the edge of the channel country. We have some grey range in there. We have mixed vegetation types on it and it's just, it's home for us um, no matter You know, it gets ugly at times in the drought, but it gets unbelievably fantastic sometimes that it rains. And um, for me, it's home. And uh, for my family, it's home. And when we're here, we think we can conquer the world.
1: How many brothers and sisters do you have, Stephen?
0: Yeah, there's seven brothers and uh, two sisters.
1: That's a good mob. Where do you sit within uh, within that mob?
0: I'm number three. Um, I'm the third son. There were six boys straight up, I think it was. Um, yeah, so it, it was a big boisterous uh, family. It taught us a lot of independence, obviously, because we all survived. Um, but it was a it was very much a roam free type lifestyle.
1: And was farm work a regular part of growing up? Were you the workforce as the kids?
0: Oh, absolutely, we were. Absolutely, we were. But I um, I never really felt like it was farm work. I mean, I. From the age of being about three, I loved, I just loved everything about it. Um, so, I mean, there's videos, there's photos of me in the sheepyard and helping out when I probably wasn't a help at all. But that's all I ever wanted to do is just go and help, get involved, and it's still the same. You know, I wake up every morning. I don't go to work. I just do what I love.
1: That's fabulous. Was there a local school or did you attend a boarding school?
0: Um, we had distance education, so School of the Air, which in the original days was um, operated out of the Flying Doctor Base in Charleville before they um, went their separate ways. With a bit more funding. So, yeah, as mum taught us, most of the majority of that time um, with a paper-based system and uh, every half an hour every day we spent on HF radio, which is the Flying Doctor Network, talking to our teacher. We did that right through to Grade 6 in the local convent, boarding convent for Grade 7 and then boarding school after that.
1: So back in 2001, when this accident occurred with your father, was it sheep or was it cattle that were being mustered on that day?
0: So we were mustering cattle and um, and it was just another ordinary day. I'd also done a lot of contracting. Dad used to do contract flying. So we'd been a team just wake up in the morning, you'd go out, muster a paddock, just like any other day. I think he had had done two and a half thousand hours of it. Most of that time I was on the ground underneath him. We knew how each other worked. It was a big partnership. So, and just a little bit of context on that, because of the time zones, we were um, ahead of the US stuff. So none of the 9-11 thing was, it, it wasn't even known or there was no, nothing that morning that was going to register that anything was normal, any different to any other day.
1: That makes sense. The letter that your father wrote to me. He said, We had been mustering cattle since daylight, myself in my aircraft and my son Stephen on the ground with his motorbike. We had been at it for several hours and we had a good mob together. Stephen had the main mob and I was bringing a few more, about 80, back up. But I had misjudged slightly and the new mob passed behind Stevens, just missing them. He sent his dog around them and I made a low pass to turn them back. We call it a bomb but it was unsuccessful and they ducked under the plane. I rolled the aircraft on its wing for a second pass but collided with a power line and crashed. I have very little recollection of what occurred from that point. When I received the letter, I read it and I just thought, oh my gosh, Stephen, you were on the ground. When did you know something was wrong?
0: Um, so yeah, I was on the ground. Like I said, it was yeah the cattle were running past the mob, but that's not unusual. You know, it was a it was just a part of the everyday type scenario. I heard this weird, very loud noise, which made me look around. At that point, that was the power line snapping. Um, And when it snapped, it uh, was quite low to the ground and uh, it hedged about 300 metres of trees as it snapped and just hedged them off beautifully, just cut them neat as. And just a fraction of a second after that, the aeroplane was cartwheeling into the ground. I was probably 150, 200 metres away.
1: Gosh, you're giving me... Shivers. What happened? Tell me.
0: Uh, well, I went instantly went there, um, into the aeroplane. Uh, I couldn't open the door. The windscreen was pushed out. Uh, I knew Dad was in a pretty bad way. Um, he was sort of, he was semi-conscious. He wasn't conscious, but he was moving. Um, I saw him pull his hand out from under the dash. He was sort of stuck. His legs were stuck under the dash. He, was, he did know enough to sort of half free himself but then I saw him wipe his face. And when he wiped his face, his whole face moved um, quite significantly. So it dropped down quite a lot, quite moved. So I knew that his face was was mush. Um, there was also sparks, radio chatter, um, static, and fuel everywhere. As you know, airplanes have fuel in the wings that um, those wings are the first things to you know, cart wield in. So those wings were badly damaged. Everything was covered in fuel. Uh, so I had to get him out. We couldn't open the door at the time. Um, I had to get him out first. Um, so he managed to be able to half communicate. I could half communicate with him enough to sort of get him to stand out and stand up and drag him out the windscreen to the side. Um, and then we got him clear of the aircraft and sat down. the The really good thing at this stage is we had a very young family at the time. Um, my wife was, uh, just had one baby, my wife was pregnant with another one. So we'd done our first aid courses and um, at least my mind wasn't a lot of confusion. I, I had the ability to snap into survival mode and do the basics that I knew that I had to do in the order that I had to do it. And it was sort of a robotic mode sort of a thing. But, um, yeah, we, we I pulled him out. Got him down on the ground and then we had to call up on the UHFs. But uh, a UHF radio back at the base station runs off power. We'd just broken the power line. Um, Luckily, it just broke the local power line to to where my uh, wife was living, Annabelle. Um, But the other power line, it didn't drop that power out to the home property. And, um, you know, properties are very busy. People are always walking around. Luckily, my mum, Wendy, was, uh, she could, she heard the radio just chatter in the background with a slightly different tone of voice. Because as you can imagine, mustering, we're talking all the time. So it obviously was a different tone of voice. And uh, that's how we got the communication back on the ground. So that because of his injuries, the clock was really ticking at this stage.
1: Were you stepping around power lines on the ground when you were trying to save your dad and get him out of the plane or was the plane separate or a distance from those downed power lines?
0: The downed power lines were had sprung back to where they were. So the plane itself was probably 80 metres away from them. Um, so that part, from our safety point of view, the power line was fine. But it's in the middle of a paddock. There's no road anywhere near it. The only road is the power line. So you can't get someone to come in along the power line because the power lines are, are, are potentially quite dangerous. So that was a so that was an issue. And it's a paddock that we only know as a family how to get around. So how can you guide someone else in to do that? I'm only on a motorbike. Um, so how do we do that? And and that was... That was um, the planet's aligned that day for a lot of reasons. I mean, that... <laughs> hitting the power line wasn't one of them, but after that everything aligned in a big way. And um, my, you know, my other brother, Jared, was uh, doing an apprenticeship on the Corporate Council, and he happened to be working on a machine on a road about six or seven k's away. And Mum managed to contact him through the um, through the council. I think she was very level headed as well. And um, he was able to to come. Um, He knew where I was talking about. He switched his UHF channel onto mine and I could talk to him directly. He knew where I was. I could guide him in. Not only that, he was in the council truck. They probably don't know how many trees and sticks (laughs) it ran over. Um, But he went, (laughs) he just bush-bashed in there to to get him out. And, um, I mean, at the same time, Triple O was called. The ambulance was called. But the ambulance was called. And the um, the doctor decided to come out in the ambulance, so that was a lifesaver too.
1: And this was coming from Quilpie, is that right?
0: Yeah. So we this happened. This accident happened probably seventy kilometres from Quilpie. So yeah, the doctor came out in the ambulance, and at the same time they they called the flying doctor that was in the air and um, <laughs> diverted to Quilpie. Yeah.
1: As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. ambulance was coming from Quilpie, were they able to actually follow the track that Gerald had bush bashed through to where your dad was, or did you have to get your dad into Gerald's truck and then drive Gerald's truck to the ambulance?
0: No, Jared well, was there, so we picked him up and got him out onto the road, and, and we picked a landmark that the ambulance could easily find so there'd be no confusion, and we, as, as fate happened, we all met up there at the same time, so uh, we met up there at the same time, um, I I remember handing over to the to the doctor, and she was a beautiful girl, immaculately dressed, and she just walked into this bloody mess. Really, that's what it was. And um, once that handover was done, that's when the robot left. And yeah, it was that sort of when the uh, when the emotion of everything sort of hit. Really, but until then, it was just a robot. You know, you just had to do this. Get him there. Hand over to those people that know what to do, and um, and get him get him into the doctor. Yeah, so that that they took over from there. They took over they they had to stabilise him a couple of times heading into town. He started to get into breathing difficulty when he got into uh, when he got into Quilpie. The flying doctor was there, had already um, set up the surgery.
1: Your dad said in his letter to me, the Quilpie ambulance arrived soon after the Quilpie doctor, Letitia. I was in attendance, and she'd previously contacted the flying doctor, Cliff Nett. He left quickly from Quilpie, and by the time... This is your dad speaking. By this time, my breathing was deteriorating rapidly. I had to work so hard to get air into my lungs, and every breath was a tremendous struggle, and I couldn't see how I was going to survive... I remember telling Letitia I wasn't going to make it and to tell my wife I loved her. She must have had her hands full. She told me afterwards they nearly lost me twice in the ambulance. Your dad then goes on to say, I made it to Quilpie, if only just. It must have been shortly after that my breathing became so difficult I knew that after a terrific struggle to get air into my lungs for one last breath, I had no strength or capability for another one. I thought, this is it. Then there was a male voice, something happened in my face and I suddenly could breathe again. And then the person said, is that better? And indeed it was. I found out later that Cliff had put a finger down my throat and lifted my face up. He said my face was so smashed up that it was actually falling down my throat. As I said, when I got your dad's letter, it just, it just stu- oh, yeah, very, very scary stuff. So, so tell me, so from Quilpie, he's there at Quilpie. They've managed to stabilise him and get him breathing okay. Where were you at this point, Stephen? Were you there at Quilpie with him or were you left behind? What? What? Where were you actually physically located?
0: Um, I, I was left behind. We went home. Um, we told, you know, brothers and sisters and trying to ring up and get updates. Um, my mum, um, friends of my mum's turned up straight away um, they were with her. They were following the ambulance in, so they they were there the entire way. Um, yeah, we were just – we just went home with the shell shock of it all and, um, yeah, just letting people know and talking to people and, and just having – for the first time, just having time to think, really.
1: And, and in that reflection time, while you're finally, um, I guess, getting a bit of a headspace after such an adrenaline rush – um, when your father left in that ambulance from Kulpi, what state was he in? So he's describing how his face was all smashed up. Did he have other injuries as well or was it just his face that had smashed into the dashboard of the plane?
0: So his face had smashed into the da- to the dashboard of the plane opposite to where he was sitting. So if you can imagine how far away that is. He did have some um, injury on his hand, a minor injury on his hand, um, but that was really the only other injuries um, and that certainly wasn't critical um yeah but the injury is i mean on a farm you deal with death you know we kill our own stock we we shoot um pests and all of that sort of thing there's drought there's death um yeah it was bad you know we knew it was very very bad yeah
1: so he got to quilpie where did the Royal flying doctor service come in did they take him from quilpie to brisbane or where did the rfds show up in this story
0: well, they showed up. They showed up in in Quilby. They were waiting for the ambulance in Quilpie and had set everything up um, in Quilpie to to be prepared for him. Um, and look, we don't know the exact timelines because timelines fly. But I mean, this is an airplane that crashed out in the middle of a paddock with no road access. I think the ambulance turned up in about forty five minutes. Wow! Like that's just phenomenal. And he was probably in Quilpie within. Um, an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. You know, like the response time for where he was was just unbelievable. They then had to fly to Charleville. They landed to Charleville to get more blood because he was bleeding out. Um, they landed to Charleville, took everything they could possibly take and then took him to Brisbane.
1: Fabulous. And so he went straight into surgery, I presume, to try to reconstruct his face and to stop the bleeding. Do you have any details about that at all? Was it a long surgery?
0: Uh, Look, it was a very, very long surgery. They basically cut him from ear to ear, pulled his entire face off the bone, put about 12 plates in there to reconstruct it. His forehead was okay, but everything below his. you know, eye sockets, uh, the top of his eye sockets, everything below there was just pulp, literally pulp. I mean, I could see it move. And so they took all of that off, wired him all back together, wired his all jaw back together. I mean, it was broken in, you know, 10 places or something. Wired him all back together and, um, you know, crossed your fingers and hope for the best.
1: Holy moly. Okay, so he's now in hospital recovering. Did it take him a long time to come through such a horrific surgery? What was the time frame from that point? And when did you get to see him next?
0: Um, the time frame was unbelievable because I mean they put him out to let him heal, but as soon as they stopped giving him drugs, he woke up. Like he just would not, he just would not let go. And I mean, I think that's probably a big part of the reason he's still here, because obviously he wouldn't let go. Um, so he was up and rational. His jaw was all wired up, so he couldn't say much, but he's communicating by a little, uh, you know, they, those little magnet boards the kids write on. So that that's all of a sudden became his. His um little thing to ride on. Um, yeah, and I didn't see him. I was running the property. The property doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop running. Um, and it was getting dry and, and we did a big, we finished the muster that he was on. We had a lot of locals came and gave me a hand, just said, look, we'll give you a hand. And just made the place, kept the place going because we, in a certain extent we knew that's what he wanted too. Like he, you know, farming doesn't stop. So uh, he would have, he would have, Hated that everyone was paying him attention and uh, and and letting the farm go. So uh, that's what we did. Um, my sister's wedding was in about two weeks, and uh, that was a, that was at home on the place. And um, he just said, "No, I'm, I'm still going." So yeah, that that's what his thing was. So he walked my sister down the aisle two weeks later. So he was out of hosp- He went out of hospital and. Um, yeah, my mum's sister was a nurse and um she they like, brought him out in the car and um he did he did look like he'd been in with Mike Tyson when he walked my sister down the aisle but he walked my sister down the aisle.
1: Wow, the photos must be amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think it's lucky he's not someone that ever lo- worried about what he looks like. I think that was <laughs> because he certainly, uh, to a certain extent, you can still you can still well and truly see the results of the accident in his face. But he doesn't care. We don't care. He- he's alive, and and that's a, that's the miracle of it all. So yeah, the first time I saw him after the accident is when he got out of the car. Yeah.
1: Wow! Wow! Well, I bet you there was a big hug.
0: There was. There was, and Dad's not someone that hugs a lot, but there was. Yes.
1: So your sister got to be walked down the aisle by your dad who looked like he'd been through World War Three. How is your dad now?
0: Um, dad is still great. Uh, dad still flies. And if anyone that, that flies a VH-registered aircraft, you have to go through a medical, um, you, you know, every, every year. It, um, he still passes that at uh, 77 or 78 or whatever he is. And uh, so he's good. Like uh, his hearing isn't great and um, he's terrified of his eyesight that he won't be able to shoot his clay pigeons anymore because um, that's what he does to keep himself active. He, he does the clay pigeon shooting. Um, but, yeah, no, he's, he's still very active. He's on a little farm and um, he looks after his 30 or 40 cattle and um, keeps himself very busy.
1: Wow. Well, that's really good. Since that time in 2001, has there been anybody else in your family that's also required RFDS services?
0: Yeah, we, we flew had to fly our um, another brother out. It fell off a motorbike one day coming back from a, just a muster. It was, muster was finished, the muster, and everyone's riding home. And, you know, it was just a, a university holiday type thing, so we'll work holiday he was on and... Um, Yeah, he just went on a bit of an old road he wasn't familiar with and I'm sort of the older person that sort of tries to uh, look out for everyone and um, I got to the gate not very far from the house and there was just one bike track there and there should have been two and I went, that's not right, it's the end of a long day, should I go back, should I not? No, I said it's not far. I know where I last saw the track. I'll just go back and check. There's only other one way he could have gone. And um,
1: and what was this brother's name? Ian.
0: Ian. Okay. This, this brother's Ian. Yes, and um, he he was his wife and um, two children, and she was pregnant. They were all here on the holidays. So yeah, so I went back and checked, and and he's face down in the dirt, not breathing, and hadn't been been breathing since the time he fell off. So he was um, sort of fitting in the dirt. So that was pretty scary exercise as well.
1: What did you do when you came across him lying face down?
0: Well, again, it's the, um, the first aid training kicks in. You've got to clear the airway. And I remember clearing his airway, you know, with your fingers and digging dirt out and then hearing his first breath. Um, so once that breathing was there, you know, getting him on the side and then calling in the help, um, it, was, it was only a kilometre or so from the home. Um, and yeah, we, we loaded him up in the car and met the ambulance and... Um, It was a, he just had a head injury um, and was in a coma for an extended period of time. But, you know, with all the help and lining up and um, he's made a full recovery.
1: Wow. I remember when I spoke with your other brother, Nick, some time ago, and he was saying one of the reasons why he had decided at a very young age that he wanted to be a pilot for the Royal Flying Doctor Service was because the RFDS had... um, been called upon at so many different circumstances through his childhood that he felt that that was something that he really wanted to do. And and maybe that was because he'd also been inspired by all the flying that your dad does. Did he learn to fly on the property as well?
0: Uh, Nick learned to fly on the property. He just, uh, he was always airplane mad. We, we grew up, In an aeroplane household. Uh, I was a little bit different that I didn't love the aeroplane as much, which was probably a good thing because someone actually had to ride a motorbike. Um, So yeah, he grew up, he always loved flying. Um, He was was born when I was 17. So when I came home from school, he was like one or two. So we grew up together. We spent a lot of time together. Um, You know, we had a great, he had probably had a Fantastic childhood even more than what we did because I remember I wanted to go water skiing, and uh, so I taught him to drive the boat when he would have been about eight, so he used to take me water skiing uh, so we did a lot of crazy stuff like that together yeah and and you know I used to just push him to do stuff so that um, it, I, I mainly for my benefit, but he obviously benefited out of it too
1: yeah. Oh, look, this has been wonderful talking to you, Stephen. I have to ask, do you think that courage and grit and tenacity runs as a genetic trait in the Tully family or does it just come from living off the land?
0: Um, look, I, I don't know because we are who we are. So it, it it feels weird. It feels very weird when someone says those things to us because we're just who we are. But certainly we have to be severely independent and love the isolation And like I said, I don't get lonely. Um, And it's fantastic now seeing my kids go through that. I mean, they will obviously spread out across the globe or do whatever they like to do. I've got two finished at school and two at boarding school. Um, But yes, it is. Um, You do have to be independent and you have to be able to think in a crisis. And we do have extended periods of drought and not so great times, but we do have the absolute most fantastic times that you could ever wish for. So... Uh, you just combine all of that into a lifestyle you just can 't re- repeat anywhere um, you know we we 've had our kids get flown out in the at the flying doctor most of it uh, well Eve was only um, just before christmas she she broke her arm falling off a motorbike, which was again another little bit of a funny story because again, I was behind them in the car and just making sure that they 're all all right. And I saw her up ahead with the motorbike on its side and she's sort of standing there, but she didn't look in distress. You look at the signs of distress, she didn't look in distress. And uh, as I got closer, I said, Eve, why didn't you pick up the motorbike? And she turned around and said, Dad, I think I broke my arm. And I had a look at it and it was in the shape of an S bent. And uh, when it's your 12-year-old daughter, you go... I need to remain calm here. Um, she's obviously not that stressed about it, <laughs> even look at, even though it looks horrendous. Um, so yeah, we had to sort of calm her, just remain calm and put her in the car and she didn't seem to be in a lot of pain and on the way home, you know, just c- casually say, how's she feeling in your fingers and all that sort of stuff, even though you're going, looking at it and going, oh my God. Um, and then uh, she said, dad, it's broken, isn't it? And I said, yeah, darling, it's, it's definitely broken said, um, I'm not going to be able to play tennis when I get back to school, am I? And that's that's when she got upset.
1: Yes, you've just answered my question about courage, grit and tenacity. It does. It is definitely a genetic trait with the Tullys. (laughs) So Thank you so much, Stephen, and I wish you and your very large, extended, wonderful family all the best, and I hope at some point when I'm up in that part of the world, I might drop in and see this wonderful property that you call paradise. Thank you so
0: much. No worries. It's a pleasure, and it's not that the Flying Doctor picks us up when we're in need, but it's also the reassurance that the Flying Doctor is there if we ever need it.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.